You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Beginning in verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Verse 1, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah. And then what follows is a list of all of the leaders, the princes, priests, Levites, prominent members, family heads that all entered into a written agreement, a commitment, a covenant to respond in faithfulness to God's grace to them. Beginning in verse 28 then. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people, peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in, our, in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, and, excuse me, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister 
and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. I pray that the Lord would add blessing to the reading and even the instruction of God's Word. I pray that even now it would become more than just ink on a page, but the very words of God to renew His people. Renewal is a lot like your clothing and doing laundry. The only way to keep your clothing clean is to not wear it. But that's not really true either, because at that point it just collects dust and becomes moth-eaten, or even worse, out of style, just by sitting and doing nothing. We find here in the Scripture a narrative that ought to, I hope, comfort some of you as you wonder why in the world sometimes things in life are difficult, and it's this. Just being in the world, just living and existing in a world that is marred by sin demands renewal. Right? You don't You don't have to do anything necessarily to to need to brush your teeth other than to just live with them. You don't have to do anything to need bathing other than just to be alive. You don't have to do anything to need to do laundry other than simply to wear them. You don't have to go out of your way. Simply being alive demands a ritual of cleansing for your teeth, your body, your clothing. And so... As we saw last week, the rehearsal of God's regular and repetitive renewal is meant to shine as a bright light in a broken world that will wear us down just by living in it. And we talked about this at the very beginning, that the experience of God's grace and renewal and reformation is is not something we just kind of sit and, and we just kind of like hope that it happens, assuming that that it will happen. Instead, it's more like sitting on, on an escalator. It's more like sitting on, on, right, on a wall, like a moving sidewalk at a large airport. If you just kind of give yourself over, it will drag you into it. It will pull you someplace where you don't want to go. And thus was the case for the people who had been exiled to Babylon. Even as they came back, it seemed like that they even though they had rebuilt their own city, they had rebuilt the temple and they had rebuilt the altar and then in the book of Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the walls. It wasn't just their circumstances that needed to be changed. It wasn't just, quite literally, a need for walls to set them apart from the people around them. It wasn't just the fact that they had no walls that they started to blend in with the world. It was also their own belief and their own behavior Not only had they blended into the nations because there was no wall, they come to realize that they had blended into the nations by their own actions. Not only was there no wall at the beginning of this story separating them from idol-worshiping pagans, there was actually no difference of behavior separating them from idol-worshiping pagans. And the story of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah is addressing both. So last week, we rehearsed as the, you see from chapter 8, 9, and 10, remember I told you the, the chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah is difficult, it's kind of written like a Quentin Tarantino movie, you're getting flash forwards and flashbacks, and 
I want you to see that even though it's difficult kind of to work that through, you might even say that chapter 8, 9, and 10 belong at the end, right? There's a sense in which in three weeks when we wrap up this, this, this series, we should wrap up there. But, but the point is clear is that the act of renewal with Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah is one event. The, the, the scribe that is Ezra, and then as we see the memoir of Nehemiah that we've been reading over the last several weeks, seems to point to this thing that the chronology is, is, is not meant to distract us from the fact that God's work of renewal is a singular event. And so renewal comes, as we saw last week, from rehearsing God's faithfulness and confessing our own complicity and sin in, the, in our own history. Confessing all the ways that we've blended into the world rather than living lives that are distinct, called out of the world. And when we rehearse God's faithfulness and realize that his mercy is new, his, his grace to us is abundant, is slow to anger and, and abounding in steadfast love, we're, we're free to confess because we long to come into the light, knowing that it doesn't surprise God at all. So the theme of chapter 8, 9, and 10 is covenant renewal. Right? You just saw right there as we, we started this section beginning in verse 38, we make a firm covenant that language of cutting a covenant is here that you see throughout the Old Testament. And we see that in that sense, the, the work of covenant rene- renewal is, is in many ways like the, the singular theme woven through the story of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. All the same themes are theologically present, but they simply are addressed from a different, a different angle. That is their rhythms. And you'll see here, I think what you find that it is a repetitive cycle, right? So if you were with us a, a while back as we went through the book of Judges, this will be not new to you, but uh, the Bible, I love how real and honest it is, and it's real and honest about how absent-minded and forgetful you and I are, right? It knows how easily distracted we are. It knows how even now you're tempted to drift off someplace else, right? Rest assured, like, you know, remember what they did here? Their, their work of renewal was a couple of six-hour worship services, so it could be worse. But in our, because we're so tempted to, to drift off and to focus on other things rather than who God is and what God has done, the Old Testament and the New are very kind and gracious to us by repeating things, knowing we're likely to forget. And then that, re- that repetition we describe as a rhythm, or in this case for the, for the life of faith, is what we call a liturgy. That is just the, re- the regular and ritual act of people, of rebuilding, of repairing, of reforming, and renewing. And so, as we see, Nehemiah chapters 1 through 7 read like a memoir. And in many ways, this seems like a flash forward in the story. We're meant to see then a pattern of a second exodus, a rhythm, just like when the people were delivered from bondage to slavery, just like, as we, and that's what they long for, they long for more deliverance, we saw at the end of chapter 9, and the same way they longed for deliverance, and yet when they were delivered, their first act was to worship another god, to to make gods of their own, right, To, to trust in lesser things, to worship lesser things, so also... We find here that the work of restoration also includes rest- being restored to right worship. In a broken, fallen world, we're exiles. And so the combined work of Ezra and Nehemiah are making the same point. That we are in desperate need, just like our laundry, 
to experience patterns of, and rhythms of reparation, restoration, and renewal. In a broken, fallen world, this is simply what it means to walk dependently upon God. Maybe think like this, what are the patterns of renewal for your laundry? Just to live in them makes them filthy. And that's just what it's like to live in a world that worships lesser things, that turns against God. It's just what it's like to live with a heart that worships lesser things. An idle, craving heart regularly needs to be put in with the laundry. So, we get a framework beginning in verse 38 of what having a sense of renewal and a public commitment to live as God's renewed, renewed people looks like in the entirety. So the first part of that picture of renewal is the list, a very public list, right? We the people, if you will. We're the people that God has delivered, and we're going to make a public commitment to do these things. Beginning in verse 28, you see kind of the second part, a, a commitment that, that is to live as God's renewed and restored people means for us to build our entire lives around God's word to us, his guide, his law, his encouragement, his, his diagnosis, as well as his deliverance. And then beginning in verse 32, how we begin to experience a, a renewed and reoriented life in our relationships, in our time, and in our generosity. So beginning in verse 38, the kind of the caption. In many ways, this is the in many ways, this is like the summary, the, the climax of the entire story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on a sealed document of the names of our princes, Levites, and our priests. I'm gonna I'm gonna hammer on this for just a minute, and then we're going to summarize the other parts. But, but I, I want to look at that verse as best we can. Because of all this, right? In the New Testament, this is a, a word that we would describe to like, therefore, right? In light of this. Well, what is that in light of? A history, a repetitive history of God's providence, of Him delivering and saving and forgiving and restoring people again and again and again and again. Over and over and over again. And so in light of God's faithfulness, think of it this way, that is who God is and what God has done. In light of that, we entrust our whole selves to him. Because of all this, we make a firm, a faithful covenant. We make a promise in public. That is, if God has publicly delivered us, if God has publicly forgiven us, then we publicly commit to entrust our entire lives to him. But before we move on from that, I, I want you to see something here that's important for us. Many times I kind of work up to how we experience the gospel in this. I want to start right off the bat how we see this. We entrust our lives to God because of what he has done. Never the other way around. Because of all this, right? Because God has been faithful, now then, therefore, we commit to living in light of his renewing work. Because God is faithful, because God is just, because God is gracious, now we're going to live in light of it. We're simply, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting, right, I'm, I, I love strange quotes that, that seem like gospel quotes, right? Quoting the great Dolly Parton, right? Just simply discover who you are and then commit to being that, right? Commit to living that out. In light of who God is, 
In light of who we are in relation to him, now we're simply living out the act of faithfulness and renewal that he's demonstrated to us over and over and over and over again. So we entrust ourselves to God, our entire lives, because of what he has done. It's never the other way around. We give ourselves to God because of his faithfulness. Now, why is this important? One of the stories I, I hear over and over and over again, I'll recite to you in just a moment, and, and I, I want to I stab at it as, as sharply as possible. So show me grace here. But many of you who even have maybe have a background in religious circles, you might have been raised in the church, you were implicitly taught the other way around. If you'll do these things, if you'll obey, if you'll publicly commit, then God will love you. If you'll be good, if you'll be faithful, fulfill these things on the list. If you'll do these things, God's love for you will increase. He'll delight in you more. He'll be happier about the fact that he's accepted you and received you. And here's the thing, while many of you have probably, if, you, if you're raised in religious circles, right, right, you probably can't name someone who at some point in time actually said that, right? Hey, I need you to do better so that God will love you more, right? Maybe that was never said to you explicitly. I don't know anyone who actually would. That's how most of you live. As though God is waiting to pull the rug out from underneath you as soon as you mess up. As soon as you fail, he can't wait to rub your nose in it. Notice the order. God's restoration and his faithfulness are not a result of your commitment. They're the source of it. They're the foundation of it. There is nothing you can do to change the way God looks at you. Here's why that's important. Your story is one of, like we saw, a rehearsal of rebellion, a rehearsal of foolishness and sin. And yet the story we rehearse is that God in Christ has made a way for us to be restored to the Father. And Jesus Christ has obeyed for us in all the ways that we could not. And now, because of all this, we give our whole selves to him. Because of all of that. The story I mentioned is the story I hear regularly, even from people who maybe have been a part of the church for decades. They'll say something like, I feel like I've been in the church for decades, and even now I'm only just now becoming a Christian. Because all this time I thought that God's grace and mercy and love was contingent upon me. And if that's you, can I just welcome <laughs> There's something in you that doesn't want to admit that you might have been wrong all this time. And we have a very long story, like in chapter 9, that you definitely have been wrong all this time. Welcome. Welcome, welcome to the group of people who rehearses how wrong we've been all this time. And one of my greatest fears is that we'll try to make commitments, we'll try to make promises based on ourselves, based on our own abilities, based on our own gifting and our disposition. We'll, we'll make promises and make commitments that ultimately depend upon ourselves to be fulfilled. And that's a false narrative. 
In many ways, that's a prison I don't want any of you to go back to. Don't miss the order. Because of God, we now can commit. I don't think I'm overstating this any when I, when I say that this place right here is likely the place where we need the most renewal. As I hear people tell stories, they've grown up in the church, but functionally believe that there's something they need to do to win God's favor. I'm afraid that we can unhelpfully leave the impression that somehow the things we do make God like us better. And renewal is something God does. (laughs) Renewal is a demonstration of his faithfulness, not ours. And here's the thing. In repetition, right? God delighted to do it. That's who God is. Right? It's like it, it, it quite literally is a match made in heaven. What do you do? You rebel and sin. What does God do? Shows mercy and grace to rebellious sinners, right? It's like, well, that works out well, right? What's my history? I have a, I have a proven history of betraying myself and others, of lying to myself and others. I have a proven history of making promises I can't keep. What's God's history? Showing faithfulness and grace and love to those kinds of people. And and when you get that, when that sinks into the core of you, then you start experiencing new life. Think of it this way. This is is the place where I've I've experienced renewal. I I rebelled against this and, and have experienced it since I was a teenager. When I think on my own sin, this is what the Scripture teaches, and it's, it's the most profound place where I regularly need renewal. I'm so grateful for the church that reminds me of these things. But the things I have such a hard time, the things in my past in my own life I have such a hard time forgetting are the things in my past that God has a hard time remembering. The things that mark my own story of brokenness and rebellion are the things that God in his mercy delights to forget. Separating us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. Remembering our sin no more. We sing this, right? What love, what kind of love are you saying? What love would remember no wrongs we've done? That's crazy. What love would remember no wrongs, no wrongs we have done? You get the idea like, why would, why would anyone do that? That's a love beyond comprehension. And that's the renewing that we experience when we see who God is and what he's like. And our commitment then, our life, giving our lives over to God is a result of experiencing his faithfulness and grace, not the other way around. Friend, God is not out there holding some grace and mercy that you just can't reach. Right? Think of it as that, like, the story of the Scripture isn't how we get to God. The story of the Scripture is that in the perfect life, the atoning death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus, how God got to us. And when that grips you, it gives you new hope. It gives you new life. It gives you a new sense of purpose. So think of it. What follows are a list of public commitments, a way that having a new restored life oriented around God's word and purpose for your life, 
is something that God desires for you. I'm worried if you try to do any of the things in this chapter in order for God to like you, here's the problem. One, he won't. He likes you based on what Christ has done for you. He he extends his love and grace and acceptance to you because of what Christ has done for you. That is a mystery, a profound and radical mystery that is only apprehended by faith. Don't try to do the math. It won't work. You, you You won't be able to rationalize that. It won't make sense. It's a mystery that we simply open our eyes in faith and go, I can't believe this, but it's true. And I don't want you to see the things that we're called to be and to do having experienced God's mercy as things that will make God like you. But here's the second thing. Not only will that not help because God is immutable, he doesn't change, he's impassable, right? And that's a good thing because his commitment to love and show grace to you in Jesus Christ is one that he's not going to change his mind on. It's a good thing. So we rehearse, right? Every week we're like, probably, probably this week though, right? Like every week, it's underneath the service, probably you, know, you come in every Sunday and you're like, probably this week though, right? Like certainly God is really fed up with me this time, right? Certainly God may has to be disappointed in me because of this last week. Nope, not this week either, right? Not next week either, right? God will not. He has not. He has poured out his love and grace to you in Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. Who are you to stand before Jesus and say, I doubt it, right? Like, so in this sense, it's finished, it's done. We rehearse it, we're reminded by it, and then we move forward. So the first thing, it won't change God. The second thing, if you, if you do these things to make God love you, not only will it not change the way God likes you, but it won't help people like you either. Because when you do something in such a way, when you act in such a way, that it gives you meaning, it gives you purpose, it gives you identity, then you are what the Bible calls self-righteous. When you're doing something in such a way that it gives you purpose and meaning, then that is a form of self-righteousness. And that not only is detestable before God, but just practically, I'll just give you a tip, it's detestable for people. You know people, right? Not you definitely you. But you know people that they don't just do a thing, they are what they do. And they want you to know it. But ask yourself this, it's a helpful litmus test. Because in the same way that they were acting in contrast to God's mercy in such a way that it, that it harmed other people, we saw this a few chapters ago, they were like selling their own people, right? This is awful. So also when when there's something in your life that gives you all the meaning and purpose and joy, it has a funny way of alienating you from all the people around you. Because you're just using those people to accomplish what you want to accomplish. So ask yourself this question, is there something, is there something I do in my life that if I were to lose it, I would lose it? Is there something in my life if I no longer was able to do it, some task or role that I occupy, if it were taken from me, that I would be in utter despair. Then, friend, it's God's mercy, even now, to see that thing crumble. You will fail. It will fail. It will be the least shocking thing about you. No one will be surprised by it. And the most amazing thing you'll come to find out is that God's grace was waiting for you the whole time.
And so that thing that you think you must do, otherwise your world falls down, that, that's a thing that substitutes for God. And in that sense, like Nehemiah was telling God's people, rebuilding a community in Jerusalem, you just look like everybody else. Right? You just look like everybody else looking for meaning and identity in all the wrong places. Maybe you think of it this way. Whenever I'm focusing on myself, even good things, my own maturity or, or my own growth, whenever I'm focusing on myself and what I'm doing, that's probably the moment when I need renewal the most. Rather than focusing on God's mercy. And as sure as this repetitive book reminds us, when that happens, not if, God's grace will be waiting. Now, in light of that, because of all this, the first section, they make a public commitment. So think of this even practically as we pray for the, the structures, I think the, the, the biblical offices of the New Testament church being members and deacons and elders, and as these things come to life in our church, these are the things we pray for, these are the things we long for, and I'll say it this very clearly, these are examples that in light of God's faithfulness we can publicly commit to, leaders of God's people lead in public commitment. This is how they lead. They say, I promise. Now, again, remember, not because they think they can, but because they know that God's grace will be waiting for them. Right? They, they can jump out and say, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to be faithful to this. Do I have any reason to believe that I'm going to be perfect in this? Absolutely not. Do I have any reason to believe that God will be faithful and gracious in this? Absolutely. Certainly. And so leaders of God's people lead in public commitment. So think of this, this way. If, if you... Just ask yourself this, like, what are the places where you really, 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 really don't wish anyone would emulate you? What are the places where you really hope no one would start to look like you if they followed in your footsteps? You really wish they wouldn't follow you around. Then, friend, notice that in light of God's faithfulness, that's probably the thing that needs to come to the light. We're a gracious community aspiring to this. And so I would just say, like, you have, God has put people around you to hear this and share it. Hey, here's a place I really don't want anyone to follow me. And guess what will happen? That's where the Lord will renew you. That's where the Lord will apply grace. Again, I tell you, as a gracious community, that's also the place that people will be least surprised. They'll be like, yeah, we've been, we've been watching this the whole time, right? Absolutely. No one, no one was taking notes. I'm going to be like you in this area, right? Like, no one's surprised by it. And you'll find that there was a whole host of grace just waiting for you. So these lists are important for us because they, they at least set an example of what a transformed life, a renewed life, a, a life that rehearses God's faithfulness starts to look like. It says, I'm going I'm to put this in writing. I'm going to make this public. That's how much I ch trust God's grace. Right? Now remember, this is where you could be tempted to like, this is how much I trust myself. This is how awesome I am. Again, that, that won't help you, uh, and it will only, it will only cause to, uh, to hurt your relationships with other people. But think of it, this is a real and tangible way. This list of people that even, think of it, it's like this is a world away. I don't know any of you that like come from a lineage where, you, none of you have any, as, as far in the last several generations, have any family names on this list, I doubt, right? This is a world away, and yet here we are, an ocean and a continent away, remembering this, this act of renewal that was publicly committed to by these people. Leaders commit publicly in response to God's commitment. It's not the other way around. They do this publicly. This is what leadership and God's people looks like. It's what it looks like in the church. God has been faithful to me, so here I go. 
right? Not like, I'm afraid I might fail. You're the only person who's worried about that, right? Like, you're the only person who's like, that might be a possibility. That is a definite reality. You are definitely going to fail. You are definitely going to be weak. You are definitely going to break. And it is in those moments that we, because of Christ, boast in weakness. We celebrate our frailty and, and marvel, not at how great or awful we are, but how God would choose to use people like us. Think of it this way. God loves broken, sinful people because that's the only kind of people there are. So it's never, I think I can do this, right? Go back, because of this, right? Because of God's faithfulness, right? Not, I think I'm I'm up for this, but because of God's faithfulness, because God's done this, the right response is to simply trust that he'll catch me in the future. And so that means leaders in the life of the church are consistent in rehearsing God's fulfilled promises. We rehearse stories of renewal. We go, remember, remember when God was faithful? Remember when God brought me through that? I know that's for you. Even the, the fact, if you stopped for a moment and thought, like, all the circumstances that got you here, I know most of you, like me, would be like, it's a miracle that I'm right here. I, I cannot believe I'm still here. The second part. Renewal includes orienting our lives, every single part around God's word to us. So beginning in verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, what does it say? They separated themselves. Literally, that word is consecration. It's set apart. The word, uh, the word holy, for example, is a word we sing and talk. It just simply means different. It means absolutely not the same. So when we talk about the holiness of God, we're saying that God has nothing in common with us, right? It is only by God's grace that we are made in his image and bear it. But even then, in such a way that's so distorted, it has to be atoned for. It has to be reconciled in order for it to be visible. And that means that God, this is beautiful, we can worship God because all the ways that we're frail and weak, he's not. And all the ways that we fail, he doesn't. And so it says that they separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, right? Remember what I told you? They, they had already built a wall that literally, and I, got, I hate to overuse that word because we're already doing that anyway, but I mean this. It is in the text, literally, they had done that. They had built a wall to separate themselves from the world. And yet now what they were doing is separating their lives. Now we're going to live in such a way in light of how God is separated from the world and we're going to, in that sense, join with their brothers, the nobles and all these people, and even accept the curses that come with that promise. As if to say, I'm willing to accept the consequences of me breaking this promise, because I still know, even in light of facing consequences that might be dire, God's faithfulness won't shake. So it says they will observe and do. So think of it this way. Ezra and Nehemiah, on regular occasions, have shown us this, right? Including by the six-hour six-hour worship services, right? Reading God's word and singing, right? The crowning achievement of renewal, and this is measurable for you and for me, the crowning achievement of renewal is to have God's word at the center of our community. That's when we know. That's a mark that God is at work, that we're experiencing the repetitive nature of his grace, that we come and we gather in this place hungry, to hear not my opinions and not my words. We need a otherworldly word, don't we? And I need another worldly kind of encouragement for what I've endured. I need another worldly kind of mercy for what I've committed. I need another worldly kind of healing for what I've been through. You get it? 
And when we start hungering for that, thirsting for that, orienting our lives around that, that's when we know we're experiencing renewal. Because we stop looking in for our own words and our own wisdom, and we start looking to the Creator to speak to us how these things work. So, renewal includes orienting our entire lives, every little part. And He gives us a list. I want to speak to them briefly. It says, I'm going to join with them, and we're going to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, a servant of God, to observe and do, right? Not just rehearse or, or memorize, but do, live these things out. All the rules and all the statutes. And then he starts to talk about something that I, I want to briefly talk about it because, frankly, we're just not very good at it. But, but he gives us some real places where we're experiencing renewal, right? One is relationships, specifically in this case, marriage. Two is time, and three is generosity. Those are the three places where I would say we are most prone to just look like the world. If you were like, I'm a Christian, right? This is, this is what I would tell you. It was like, talk to, me about, talk to me about how you think about sex and relationships, right? Talk to me how you spend your time, and talk to me how you spend your money. And I'll be able to tell you if you really think you're a Christian or not. Or you can call yourself whatever you want in this place, in this moment, but if you start looking at how these things, like, do you just look like the world, or are you an otherworldly citizen? Have you been transformed? And again, because when you start to orient your life around this, you do, you kind of stand out. You're going to look kind of strange, but just don't be surprised. That's how it's always worked, right? So it says, first, the place that they'll, they'll experience and express this renewal in verse 30, we'll not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and even, ex in, even the exaction of every debt. Do you see the first two? The relationships and time. Look at the relationships. All I'll say is this, like, to long for and experience God's grace is to have a renewed and transformed view of relationships. Because you will either experience God's grace, you will experience all the satisfaction for your heart's desires, or you'll go looking to use other people to get it. Let me say that again. You'll either like experience all the grace and mercy and satisfaction for all your deepest desires from God, or you'll have to look to other people. In this case, you'll have to look to sex. That's where you look, because, you, because after all, like you, I'm, I'm empty. I'm, I'm living miserably. I have, to, I have to get this thing. I can't not be this thing. I was born this way. Don't you know I have to be satisfied in this way? If I don't express this thing, do you hear it? Do you hear the language of slavery? And true freedom is when we say, look, I'm free to just love you. I'm free to love you like God has loved me. No strings attached. I don't, need, I, don't, I don't need to come to you and force you to give me something. And so it says here, like, we're not going to have marriages like the rest of the world has. We're not going to relate to one another like the rest of the world does. We're going to have a different look on life. We're going to realize that marriage is a picture of God's reconciling work. And so we're going to live in light of that. We're going to commit to it. I think this just means for us, so maybe you're not a parent, right? And you're, you might hear go like, well, I, you know, this is for their daughters and sons. It's not for me. Hang on. Um, Paul tells the New Testament church, look, you had lots of guides but no fathers. And I want to tell you right now, 
I am the recipient of God's grace through spiritual fathers and mothers. And one of the things we do as the church is we, we in many ways, we, we live out the spirit of God's adoption and we care for people. So even if you don't have a son or a daughter, maybe you will one day, but maybe you won't, and maybe here's, your responsibility will be to do this, to model a kind of relationship that, that people would emulate and want to follow, to be so deeply satisfied by God's grace, to know that he will meet all of our needs in this life and the life to come, such that we don't go around desperately trying to satisfy those needs here and now. And here's what, again, think of it this way. Well, well, what if I fail? All right, there you go again, assuming really silly things. You're definitely going to fail. Again, go back to chapter 9. God's going to be faithful. He'll restore you. You'll learn from it. You'll, you'll experience consequences of it. And God's grace will be sufficient. He'll lead you through the whole thing. Second thing, time. Right? Renewed people have a, have a different view of relationships. Second thing is they have a renewed and changed view of time. Did you hear that? They, they hold tightly to the Sabbath. That is, they're willing to say, this day, I'm not going to do anything to earn God's love. Not a thing. Right? You have to see this like a second exodus. You have to see this from the picture of a slave wandering in the wilderness. A slave who never got a day off. Right? The act of Sabbath, the, 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 re, the rehearsal of Sabbath is an act of rebellion against the slaveholder, isn't it? Go to work today. Nope. Right? That, that's, that's Sabbath. Can you hear it? Can you hear, like, and it's, can you hear Satan saying to you, earn your salvation today. Earn God's love today. Work today. Work it off, man. And you go, nope. I'm just going to rest. I'm just going to sit here and experience God's love. Aren't you going to do something? No. Aren't you going to do something? Shouldn't you do something? No. Do you hear it? Have you carved out time in your week to tell the devil, I'm doing nothing to earn God's favor. I'm just receiving the free gift of God's love in Christ. Jesus fulfilled this, right? Jesus fulfilled all the commands. This is one of the most powerful things that will inspire you to Sabbath. Do you remember what Jesus was doing on the last Sabbath that he was on the earth? He was resting in a tomb. And was that time wasted? <laughs> right? Was that time, was it mismanaged time? Should Jesus have been doing something different? No. And so also, we recognize God's favor for us, and we live our lives accordingly. Friend, rest. For some of you, that's today. That's the Lord's Day. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. For some of you, that maybe, maybe if you're like me, you work holidays and weekends, okay? You're going to have to get creative. You're going to have to find a 24-hour period where you simply say, I'm not going to do anything. To, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to live in light of this. Here's the last part from 32 on, a picture of generosity. When you realize how generous God has been to you, when you realize how faithful God has been to you, it changes your relationship to things. Right? Renewed people have a different, different view of relationship, but renewal always results in generosity. Because after all, if you earn the renewal, then it's going to be hard to be generous. But if God freely gives it to you, then you're going to be generous. You're going to realize that 
nothing I possess is actually mine. It's all a gift of grace. And so therefore, I don't have to be stingy with it. Right? Is God going to restore me? Yeah. Again. And I'll land on this. This is what we see in the New Testament. The language of tithing and the language of temple, the language of that which is holy, is all for us fulfilled in Jesus. Remember? Remember when Jesus walked in and cleansed the temple? That really made them mad because they were like, hey, only God gets to tell people what to do in the temple. And he's like, yeah, right? And then he's like, this whole temple is going to get knocked down by the Romans, but I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And they're like, how on earth are you going to restore the sacred space? Uh, how are you going to restore God's sacred space in, in, on the third day? He's like, just watch me, right? You get the picture? All, of, all the promises of God's temple, all, of, all, of his, all the pictures of his presence with his people are fulfilled. They are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And now, in Christ, you and I, united to him by faith, experience all those yeses and amens in our own lives. And Paul says it this way, don't you know? I love that. This is just, he, he was, it probably wasn't for you. Sometimes when he's really mouthy and kind of condescending, just so you know, that's part of the Bible that was written for me, right? You may not be as hard-headed as I am, but sometimes condescension goes a long way with me, right? As if to say, don't you know? Right? Again, if, if he were here talking to you, he'd be like, oh, I just want you to know, right? But these little parts of the Bible are for me. Do, hey, are, do you really not know this? Don't you know that you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? Let me give you a couple of practical applications for this. First of all, the church is a people, not a place. Right? So we're just careful about how we use the language. But the temple of God, the, 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 holy, the holy presence of God in the world is embodied in people. It's not just this building. This building burns down. Whatever. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll gather somewhere else and God will meet with us there. Right? He will be faithful to do that. And so that means that when you get to the very end and you think about God's renewing presence, rebuilding this people, reconstituting this community and the world, and then the commitment that they publicly say, we're not going to neglect this house, is meant for us to be a fulfillment of all that Christ has done for us. It's meant for us to be a deep comfort that all that is true about this passage is true for you and me, the church under the lordship of Jesus. And that means that we're generous towards it. Now, here's, here's how this looks. Like it, it gives us a picture of, of some principles, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a crash course on them, right? One of the words that maybe if you're from a religious background, here, okay, be careful, okay? Um, that word tithe. It's just a mathematical word. It's a proportional word. It just means tenth. So when somebody uses the word I tithed, like with some specific, like, like of some spiritual tone, it's like you, you tenthed. Okay, good for you, right? I mathed. Yes. Well done. Right, but you know that sometimes, sometimes the proportional nature of things, like, is just a reflection of our heart. And so here's what I'm going to give you some practices. Like, all these things are fulfilled for us. Did you, did you catch one of them there? I want you to reorient this. I want you to tenth, right? Think of it this way. Is that like, in that sense, that's even a small thing. If God has given you all that you own, how much of it are you going to invest into his kingdom, right? I remember, we saw this in Malachi last year as we prepared for Advent the same way. What were the problems that Malachi said to prepare us for the four centuries before Jesus would come? Marriage, right? And money, Bring all the tithes, right? So, so the same thing we're meant to see here. This is a place where God can show, it can show off his own glory and majesty to the world in the way that we respond to 
to one another, the way that we invest in our own pursuits as opposed to God's pursuits. So here's the thing. We're invited to be on mission with God. And I want to say, I want you to give generously to all that God is doing in and through his people. But here's the important part. Remember we started with it? Because of all this. Did you see one of the things in there? This is my favorite one, right? You'll see it elsewhere in Numbers as well. But did you see one of the offerings was a sin offering? And some of you think when I say, hey, let's, let's invest, let's give money to what God is doing in and through the life of this church, some of you, you start to feel guilty, right? You feel, oh, you feel a little angsty. And here, I want to be very clear. I don't, just to be very clear, I don't want your money. God doesn't want your money, okay? It's all his. God wants you. And he entrusted his money to you. And so here's the thing. We don't give sin offerings, We don't give guilt offerings. We don't give peace offerings. All of those were given to us in Christ. He is our sin offering. He is our peace offering. He is our guilt offering. Now everything we have is simply for us to hold on to, to pass around in light of being freed of sin, guilt, and shame, right? So here's the thing. I I don't want your money, and God doesn't want your money. God is doing something and he's renewing us. And when you begin to see that he's faithful to you and entrusted these things to you, it begins to loosen your grip. And so I want you to give generously. We talk about this in our own household. We, I think you should start with some proportional giving. If it's a tenth, go for it. Start with not nothing. Right? Just, Jesus said, just be faithful with a few things. All right? Just see, what, see what God will do in that. And then begin to marvel at what God is doing. Did, did you hear the story we got to rehearse? Did you hear so grateful that Trot led us through this. You'll hear some more of these in the future. I hope you hear them regularly. When you invest into all that God is doing, and if it's not this church, great. Go belong to a church you can be generous to. And if you can't be generous to a church, repent because you don't know Jesus, okay? So when, when you experience God's grace and you can begin to invest in what God's doing, and when, when you experience God's grace so much that you want to see that grace experienced by people around you, then you start to let go. And I would say every single year, our family, we try to give a little more. How can we be a little more generous? How can, we, how can we give a little more? How can we expect a little more? We do this in our church budget. How can we invest a little more? And so when you give to this church, all it goes to is to simply this, to not neglect the house of God, to not neglect what God's doing, and to thank God for all the stories of renewal that are represented in this room. Not because we're guilty, but because we're freed from guilt. Not because we have sin in our consciousness, but because God in Christ has freed us. Not so that we'll have peace with God, but because we know we do have peace with God. And that changes the way we relate to one another. It changes the way that we relate to time. It changes the way that we relate to generosity. Because we begin to experience all of that as a gift. I want to end, even in light of that, with a word of commendation. This is the most generous church I've ever been a part of, without a doubt. It's the first church I've been a part of that I actually like giving to, right? I've said that in membership class. It's like, I've been a part of a church where I'm like, I don't know. But when I hear stories of what God's doing around this room, I think, I wish I could give more. (laughs) I want to see more. I want to see more of that. I want to hear more stories. I want to hear our neighbors and your family members. I want to hear more stories of renewal. And so I want to commend you. This isn't a place where I want to say, shame on you, give more. Oh, there's some big things coming up. I don't know. You had a hard time parking out there? We're going to be investing some money in a parking lot, right? Hey, 
You know, right? I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, hey, God's going to bless us, then we're going to have to be good stewards of it, right? So I'll be very clear. But I don't want to say, I don't want to end like shame on you. I want to say, look at what God has done. Look at what God continues to do. Look at what God is doing around us. In light of what Christ has done, we can now entrust our whole selves to him. Every bit. You can trust him with your relationships. You can trust him with your time. You can trust him with your money. You can trust him with your eternity. I want to commend you. I want to invite you to experience more and more of God's grace in this area because he's worth it. Let's thank God for him. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that you've come to us in Christ. You have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you, God, that you have shown us mercy over and over and over again. God, thank you that as, as, as our sin abounds, there's sufficient grace waiting. Lord, thank you for even in this room the stories of renewal. For many of us, even our presence here is a, is a story of deliverance. You've brought us through so much, and we know that you're going to carry us on to the end. Might we rejoice in that. But Lord, maybe for the rest of us, maybe we've simply committed to lesser things. We're publicly committed to other things that won't satisfy. Maybe today, Lord, would you remind us of your grace and because of all of that, we would commit ourselves to your purposes in our lives, to your purposes in the world. Might we join you in your, in your mission of renewal. God, loosen our grip on the things that hold on to our hearts. God, we're given three, but there's more. But Lord, give us faithfulness in these three. Loosen our grip on our view of relationships. Help us to relate to others in holiness like you relate to us. God, help us to relate to our time as a limited resource that you have given us on this earth. Help us to relate to our finances in such a way that reflects your mercy in our lives. God, we know that we can't possibly fulfill these commitments. You're going to have to do them, so thank you. Thank you that there is waiting for us grace. Thank you that there is waiting for us faithfulness. Thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you that that story is so repetitive. We're so prone to forget it. Help us now to rehearse in the depths of our souls how merciful you have been to us. Help us to respond like the people in Nehemiah here that sing praises because of how good you've been to them. Thank you that that's true for us. Thank you for the generosity we've experienced, the kindness we've experienced, all the evidences of your grace in this room. Thank you for that. We have nothing to say but thank you. Lord, you're so worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.